the big question here going forward is he's been given a chance to rewrite the final chapter of his Disney book. He didn't write that chapter the right way the first time. Can he write it the right way the second time? Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, November 24th, and on this Thanksgiving holiday, Dylan Byers is here to give thanks to the feast of media news that's fallen on our plates over the last few days. Disney, CNN, The Washington Post, The Murdochs. Dylan has you covered, and I even ask his opinion on stuffing. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ains. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Thursday and happy Thanksgiving, Powers of Be listeners. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers, who is going to talk to me about the thing that is only slightly less divisive over Thanksgiving than politics, sports, and religion, which is the media. How you doing, Dylan? Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> happy Thanksgiving to you. I wish you were here uh, mixing up cocktails uh, for Thanksgiving. I feel like I would hire you to bartend if you <laughs> weren't far above that in life. But there's a lot to get to here today. And maybe at the top of the list, we have Disney and Bob Iger. What was your reaction the other day? I think it was Sunday night when it just came down that Bob Iger was coming back to Disney as CEO and Chapek was out. I mean, was that a surprise to you? Oh, yeah. And it was a surprise to almost everybody. I mean, you have, and and I think our, our dear colleague Matt has captured some of this, but you have this sort of incredible, very cinematic succession style scene where you've got Disney executives who are at an Elton John concert that is uh, at, at Dodger Stadium that is, by the way, being live streamed on Disney Plus, um, who have to sort of like learn about this mid concert. You've got other Disney executives who are at uh, a, an award ceremony, I believe, uh, on the other side of town, who are, have to be like pulled out of there so that they can sort of be read in on the news. It was a surprise for everybody. He's been spotted with various former Disney executives having lunch and dinner recently. I don't even think that those folks knew about it. I'm not sure how recently Iger himself knew that this was going to happen. My reaction was... I had an initial two-minute reaction, which is I saw the memo and, and as the news was breaking. And the initial reaction is the one that has sort of come to shape the narrative, which is very, in its way, Disneyfied and not unlike the narrative you would see in a Disney movie or a Star Wars movie. Here you have Bob Iger, the sort of rightful king, the chosen one, returning triumphantly to the Magic Kingdom to restore peace and prosperity and take the throne back from his very inept successor, 
who apparently couldn't get the job done. Apparently, the only person who can run Disney in this day and age is Bob Iger, so he has to come back. Um, And then there are all these sort of various subplots that fit very neatly into a story that the sort of first draft of a story that I, I do believe will come to sort of have its own chapter in the histories of corporate America, because it is really sort of incredible what's happened here. And the truth is, is that there's actually a lot more nuance to it. So two minutes after I saw that news, it occurred to me, this actually isn't really a triumph. In many ways, it is an admission of a failure. Caveat, Bob Iger's incredible. He deserves, largely deserves his reputation as sort of the consummate CEO and business leader. His 15-year run at Disney is filled with success and growth. I think he quintupled the market cap of the company. He acquired a lot of big companies. He set the company up for the success that it has today, despite living in an era of Amazon and Apple and Google. Good on him for all that. But the one thing that he really screwed up in his legacy was his successor and the choice of his succession. And that was evidenced early on from the mistakes that Bob Chapek made. It was evidenced early on from the fact that Bob Chapek really iced Bob Iger out, despite the fact that he, Iger was staying on for a year as, as the chairman. When things finally got to this point, I think with the earnings call that happened last week, and it was so bad that they decided they need to get Chapek out, I think that Iger, who is probably trying to figure out what to do with himself ever since leaving Disney and hasn't come up with a really great answer for that, saw an opening here to come back and write the one thing that I think he's pretty demonstrably done wrong and that has probably nagged at him ever since he left the company. So that, to me, is really the big sort of question here going forward is he's been given a chance to rewrite the final chapter of his Disney book. He didn't write that chapter the right way the first time. Can he write it the right way the second time? Do you think, this is a pop quiz, I guess, but like, what do you think he does with Disney now? Like, is he going to buy a tech company? Is he going to buy Netflix? First of all, I don't, I don't know the answer. A couple of things, though. One, I think that in the immediate, he needs to stabilize things and undo a lot of the poor decisions that were made under Chapek, which he has already said about doing. Chapek basically instituted a new sort of management structure that put distribution at the helm. And within the first 24 hours, Iger undid that and then got rid of the executive who was running that, Kareem Daniel. I think that in the immediate, he needs to signal that he is going to bring the stock back up and restore faith on the street. I think in the long term here, there are two objectives. One is actually finding the right successor, which I'm sure he's already thinking about. And if he really does just stay two years, that's a process that begins now. Bob Iger has a history of saying he's going to stay for two more years and then staying for another two years and another two years. So we'll see how that shakes out. But the second thing is, yes, I think there need to be big swings. Disney isn't the only media company that's suffering. In a way, every media company is going through its own sort of chaos and trying to navigate not just this current moment economically, but also the sort of broad changes that are happening in the business and how do you reposition your company for success and for companies of Disney's size, that probably almost certainly means more M&A. I think there are other questions too, and my guess is everything's on the table. Is now the time to revisit whether or not you spin off ESPN and the linear assets? And is it time to take a bolder 
step in that direction. On the other hand, it's a very difficult time to do that because despite those businesses not growing, they're bringing in a lot of money at a time when Disney decidedly needs the money. Do you go back to being really aggressive on streaming? Do you try and move more of your sports rights over from ESPN linear to ESPN streaming? I don't know. The one thing I do know is I don't think Bob Iger came back to play small ball. I think he came back to rewrite that final chapter and to do so with some pretty broad strokes. I think everything is on the table for him. Dylan, when we come back, I want to talk to you about two other leadership dramas going on at CNN and The Washington Post. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what The Playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback. Backed by research, kids using IXL are scoring higher on tests. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. Rather than looking at multiple programs to help your child in different subjects, one subscription gets you everything with IXL Learning, and all the kids in your home work off once site from pre-K to 12th grade. If your child is struggling, this is the smartest investment you can make. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com IXLAV. Visit IXL.com IXLAV to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Welcome back, everyone. Hey, Dylan, there's a this is probably not the, the biggest story in the saga of CNN right now, but I do want to mention it before we get to The Washington Post and, and Fred Ryan and his uh, tenure at The Post. You know, you tweeted earlier this week and then you're doing some reporting on this that Michael Bass is leaving CNN. He's CNN's head of programming. He was one of the interim newsroom leaders after Jeff Zucker left. You know more about this than I do, but Bass, to me, super nice guy, always felt like you know, he predated uh, Zucker and he felt like a anchor for Chris Licht, maybe to people who had predated Chris and, and his team at CNN and could sort of help him navigate the waters of the various newsrooms and bureaus there. What's the, is there a backstory here? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I should say that Michael Bass was considering, his contract was going to be up at the end of this year. He was considering leaving before the Jeff Zucker drama took place before Chris Licht was installed, before all of of the chaos that has ensued at CNN. However, he's always been an important person at CNN, but he became especially important after Chris Licht took over because Chris Licht made a point of not being that very hands-on, middle-of-the-newsroom, every decision runs through me leader that Jeff Zucker was. And in lieu of that, he effectively appointed Michael Bass as his point person. So much so to the point that he said that, you know, I don't want to be getting emails directly from everybody and every executive producer and top talent. If you have an issue, go to Michael. Michael will come to me. I'll come back to Michael and Michael will go back to you. So he set up a very clear chain of command 
that ran through Michael. So Michael was extremely important in that regard. Number two, part of the problem that Chris Licht has been dealing with, first of all, Chris Licht has no experience running a big media company, let alone a global cable news business that runs 24-7. In order to run a company like that, you rely on the institutional knowledge and wisdom of people who have experience in those fields. When Jeff Zucker is ousted and then you come in and you start losing executives like an Andrew Morse and you get rid of Rebecca Cutler and then all of a sudden Michael Bass announces he's going to leave and Amy and tell us now that you've like significantly basically neutered her division at CNN Films, she's probably going to leave soon. What you're doing is you're effectively depriving yourself of access to the brain trust that actually understands how this place works. Michael Bass leaving, is anyone going to know what that's all about or care outside of Hudson Yards? Probably not. Does it come with the same drama that Jeff Zucker's ouster does or that Chris Lick's, you know, tumultuous six months? No. But is it significant? Yes, because it's a sign, basically, that Chris Lick, who has already sort of alienated himself from the newsroom and from a large swath of the company by choice, and is sort of, you know, in the bunker with his inner circle upstairs, he has now gotten rid of the person who basically serves as the conduit between him and the 4,000 people who are working for him. To me, it's a sign of further instability ahead. On a similar note, a different newsroom, the Washington Post down in Washington. It sounds like, you know, according to your writing, Epoch, you have a piece up on this. There are questions about Fred Ryan's leadership at the Post. And for people who don't know, he's the publisher and CEO of the Post. He used to be at Politico. He came on board after Marty Baron took the lead as editor. And, you know, in that era, the Trump years, the Post was flying high. But post-Trump, it feels like there hasn't been much of a strategy in terms of, like, investments in different products or innovation. There's been some big employee flare-ups, you know, some employee-on-employee action that unfolded on Twitter. Uh, The subscriber business isn't doing so hot. How much of the blame is falling back on him specifically, and should it? Is that fair? A lot is falling on him. Um, <laughs> okay. We've now arrived at this point, which is after after the Trump bump, after that sort of record 50% year-over-year growth when everything seemed rosy, we've come out on the other side, and it's clear that, well, the New York Times was busy building itself into a strong media company with more than 10 million subscribers, a, a lot of aggressive acquisitions, and really fashioning itself as a sort of lifestyle brand that that doesn't just take up 15 minutes of your day for news consumption, but also, you know, games and cooking and sports coverage, everything like that. The Washington Post was sitting back and just saying, isn't this great? It continued to do great political coverage and great investigative work, and it continues to have very strong journalists in that regard. But it stayed in that lane, and it didn't build beyond that. The frustrations with Fred Ryan, he is getting a lot of the blame for that, all the way to the point where, and this is what I've been reporting recently, is that even the editor who he handpicked to replace Marty Barron has in private conversations effectively faulted him for some of this and suggested that she doesn't really know how much longer he's going to be CEO of the company. The big question mark here is Jeff Bezos. 
Is he paying attention to this? Does he kind of view the post as sort of a distraction and an annoyance? Obviously, he's got a lot of other things on his plate. He's got Amazon. He's got space travel. He's got... Um, he might buy the commanders. He might buy the commanders. <laughs> I mean, he, yeah, right. He's going to dinner with Jay-Z. I don't think he's thinking about the post enough. But if he were to stop for a minute and take a close look at it, he would see that he has a CEO and an executive editor who are basically at war with one another. One person I spoke to <laughs> at the post was like, you know, what really shocks me about this is not so much that that the executive editor and, and the publisher are at odds with each other, but just how extensively well-known that is inside of the newsroom. Is it Fred Ryan's fault alone that the post didn't grow and pursue a, a sort of more aggressive growth strategy while it had the advantage of bringing in all those subscribers during the Trump years? If it's not his fault, I, I sort of don't know who else it is. I was going to say, you make this illusion in your piece too that jumped out at me, which is he could be seen as like dining out on the success of Politico when in reality the success of Politico was based on the vision of John Harris and Jim Vandehei right. and Mike Allen and Roy Schwartz, who three of those four at least went on to build another great media company, Axios. That is just like a hint that, you know, maybe this guy might be a really good steward of a business, but perhaps not the greatest uh, innovator or disruptor, to use a terrible mid-2010s word. Right. So th there's this joke that came my way from two different people. I don't think it's a serious thing, but I, but I think it's a telling joke, which is that Jeff Bezos thought he was getting Jim Vandehei when he hired Fred Ryan. And he didn't, realize, he didn't realize who was responsible for the success of Politico. Here's what I'm told by everyone I've spoken to. Fred Ryan is an incredibly good person, nice person, hardworking person. And by the way, he gets labeled as sort of being like old fashioned or he doesn't get it. He's actually also described as someone who very much does sort of understand the technological changes that are happening and the need to sort of be current with that. What no one seems to see in him is a bold visionary leader who really understands how to think beyond the beltway and really realize Jeff Bezos's stated dream of creating a global media company. And meanwhile, day by day, the delta between the success of the New York Times with more than 10 million subscribers and the Washington Post, which has fallen short of 3 million subscribers after hitting 3 million in 2020, that delta grows wider every day. And I think it, it raises significant questions about whether or not something needs to change. All right, Dylan, thank you so much for your insights as always. Happy Thanksgiving. Last question. Um, are you uh, pro or anti-stuffing? Oh, stuffing to me, I would argue that it's the most important dish on the table. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, no, I'm pro-stuffing. Wait, well, we're on Thanksgiving. I have a happy Thanksgiving I want to extend to some people in the media. Go which is the Murdochs, which is not something I, not a, not, <laughs> not something I ever expected to say. <laughs> Here's what the 24 hours around Thanksgiving is going to look like. A lot of people are going to watch the World Cup on Fox, and then they're going to go straight in to a Thanksgiving Day Cowboys-Giants matchup, which historically Thanksgiving Day games are very mismatched. This is a 7-3 Giants versus a 7-3 Cowboys. Then everyone's going to have Thanksgiving dinner, and then they're going to wake up the next day and they're going to watch USA England in the World Cup on Fox. Of all years, I think this is the fattest turkey that Lachlan and his dad will ever be eating. So kudos to them for being aggressive 
in their sports rights bidding and seeing the fruits of their labor pay out this week. I mean, I it's hard for me to say thank you to the Murdochs in any way, <laughs> <know>. but <laughs> by the way, there goes there goes my Thanksgiving dinner conversation. <laughs> As someone who's binging all all of those games, in addition to college basketball and Fox Sports One, you're right, man. I Holy know. shit, uh, there's going to be a lot of eyeballs there. Sports, um, man. But hopefully. Hopefully all the ears will be with us here at the powers that be. Yes. Dylan, I'm grateful for you. So thankful for you. Thankful for you, Peter. Thankful for the whole puck team. All right, man. Have a good holiday weekend. You too, man. I'll see you on the other side. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.